Good morning, Grace. <clears throat> so I have got to tell you <clears throat> that uh, my friends did not exactly inspire a lot of confidence in me when I told them that I got today's passage to preach on. The Nephilim, right? In fact, at some point or another, all of them, maybe not all of them initially, but at some point, all of them laughed in, uh, in, in hearing the, uh, the, the story that this was the passage that I was assigned. Somebody said, wow, Kenny Clark, maybe he doesn't like you that much. Or uh, I had basically a number of reactions that basically led me f- to feel like my job up here this morning was um, not to hurt myself. So I got to tell you, when, uh, when, when, when times get like that, I go into my uh, philosophy of preaching bank to the preaching philosophy of my favorite all-time NFL running back. My all-time favorite NFL running back had a preaching philosophy. He didn't know it, uh, but it works. His name was Leroy Horde. You probably haven't heard of him. That's why I like him. He was a decidedly average running back. He played in the 90s for the Vikings and the Browns. He wasn't fast. He never carried for a lot of yards, and he didn't score many touchdowns. And that basically summarizes my uh, football playing career. So I can identify with him in that. But one day after practice, uh, a reporter shoves a microphone in Leroy's face, and he says to Leroy, he says, Leroy, describe your running style. What kind of running back are you? And here's what Leroy says, something to this effect. Leroy says, uh, he says, if you need one yard, Leroy will get you three. If you need five yards, Leroy will get you three. So (laughs) I love Leroy Horde. So with our expectations appropriately lowered for what we can do with the Nephilim today, I promise to you that in light of a five-yard passage, we'll get three yards in a cloud of dust. How about that? It is true that there are some mysteries in this morning's passage that we probably can't be certain about, but I do want to say really, uh, truly, and seriously at the outset that that doesn't mean that we're left without a word from God this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, Genesis 5 and 6, right at the beginning of your Bibles. And if you don't have one, just stick your hand in the air. We have ushers in the back that would be delighted to give you a copy of the scriptures. It's our gift to you. You can use it this morning. You can take it with you. You don't have to give it back. We'd love for you to have, have that if that's what you need. So Genesis chapters 5 through 6. And one of the things that we see right off the bat in the early chapters of Genesis is how quickly and rampantly this virus of sin spreads, right? That's clear from the narration of Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 6. And so we want to just kind of review briefly at the outset how we got to the place of of, of where our morning's passage uh, takes us. How did we get here? So we recall that uh, in the judgment of, of Adam and Eve and serpent in Eden, Randy preached on this a couple of weeks ago, that in the judgment that was pronounced on the serpent specifically, we have this verse in Genesis 3.15, where God says to, uh, to the serpent that one day the seed of the woman will rise up and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So even amidst judgment, there is, there's hope. And Kenny preached uh, from Genesis 4 for us, Last week, and and Genesis 4 opens, you can almost feel Eve's optimism about this promise being fulfilled, right? She says, with the help of the Lord, I've begotten a son. Of course, we know that son is Cain, and her optimism is quickly dashed. The rest of chapter 4 not only tells us of Cain's murdering Abel, but of the rest of his lineage. And though his line was responsible for some cultural achievements, It is marked by significant departure from the Lord, abandoning God's 
commandment of monogamy and also we see the escalating violence of Lamech. Remember he said that if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech shall be avenged seventy-sevenfold. So as we make our way through chapter four, it appears that the seed of the serpent has the, has the upper hand until we got to the end of that chapter and we meet the replacement son of Abel. We meet Seth and we're told that Seth's line in verse 26 of chapter four kind of, kind of resurrected or began the point at which people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So hope is reinvigorated. And then we read at the beginning of our chapter today, verses one through three of chapter five, we read these words. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So we see that image bearing continues. Being fruitful and multiplying continues. There is hope renewed. But we don't have to read very far in Genesis chapter 5 before we realize that even while Seth's line is not the same as Cain's, it also isn't like life in Eden. Because the most constant refrain we read in chapter 5 are the three words, and he died. Well, following chapter five, we read in these, uh, beginning in verse one of chapter six, we read these words about the escalation of wickedness and, and sin. Verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, <clears throat> the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So by the time we get to these ravages of sin in Genesis chapter 6, we are left to wonder if the line of the promised seed through the woman has finally been broken. But as we'll see embedded amidst all of the sin and the judgment and, and threat of death of these chapters, there's evidence, some remarkable glimmers that God's grace is greater still. And so that's our flyover. That's how we get to where we are this morning. And, and I'll just tell you that in our passage this morning, I've got three main movements, three main points to walk us through. The first is the place of mercy and judgment in Seth's line. The place of mercy and judgment in Seth's line. The second is to see that human wickedness always centers on living without reference to God. Human wickedness always centers on living without reference to God. And third, we will see that the answer to the predicament of sin and judgment is walking with God. The answer to the predicament is walking with God. 
So would you pray with me and let's invite the Lord's help on our preaching and our hearing this morning. Father, we ask that you would help us now in these moments to see the seriousness and the severity and the offensiveness, not just of the sin of Genesis chapter 3 or 6, but our own sin like never before. And Lord, as we do that, we ask that you would also help us to see not only our sin, but the unparalleled mercies that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. May he be exalted in our hearts and our minds this morning. May we conduct this preaching moment, Lord, in a way that is cognizantly, consciously, and experientially taking place before you and in your presence and with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so point number one. We see mercy and judgment in Seth's line. Mercy and judgment in Seth's line. The first thing that we notice when we contrast the line of Seth in chapter 5 with the line of Cain in chapter 4 is that God is being very merciful, isn't he? We see, the, we see a reclamation of some creation purposes after the plummet of Genesis chapters 3 and 4. We saw that Seth's line calls on the name of the Lord at the end of chapter 4, and that stands out in contrast to Cain's line, which most clearly resisted doing that very thing. We've seen that image-bearing continues through this line. It actually continues all the way down from Adam to Noah. Noah is the one who is prophesied to bring relief from the curse. Look at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 5. This is, by the way, a different Lamech than the one from chapter 4. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Again, we get echoes of chapter 1 here, right? Mankind made male and female in God's image. The image is being passed on in the aftermath of sin. And clearly, to be an image bearer includes not only knowing God, but having this capacity to walk with him and to be stewards on the earth, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1. The patriarchs, in some measure in chapter 5, are living out an experience of God's blessing, even as they suffer under the curse of a fallen world. And so we can see the faithfulness of God's promise to Genesis 3.15 here. Seth's line is pregnant in some sense with greater blessings that transcend the curse and promise a pathway of rescue. Of course, that all all points us forward to the ultimate relief that comes through the seed of the woman, which we will see in a bit. However, Seth's line is still subject to the poison of the serpent, isn't it? We've seen that it's different than Cain's line, but it is very different from Eden. Even this best of human lines after the fall is different from Eden, Death abides here. The basic, structure, the basic structure by which Genesis chapter 5 proceeds says that uh, a particular individual lived, fathered uh, a particular child, lived X number of years after fathering, father, fathering that child, followed by a total giving of that person's years, and then the statement, and he died. Well, just to give you one example, we see that about Seth in verses 6 and 7. So here's how the formula works. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. You probably remember that from our reading service if you were here for that. It was very palpable. You can't escape those three words. What does that show? It shows that despite all the blessings 
and kindnesses that God has shown to this line, the penalty for sin has not been escaped. So the story of death begins with a murder in chapter 4. It continues, as we see here in chapter 5, making chapter 5 not just a genealogy, but a table of deaths. And then that story of death cascades into chapter 6, 7, and 8, where God floods the entire earth, all of the human race except Noah and his family on account of their sin. The point is, it, it, the, the point is that it doesn't matter how the death takes place, be it old age, murder, or the flood, The point is that outside of Eden, the end game is always the same. And he died. So what are we to make of this? Genesis 5 makes a big deal out of this. Apparently, given the emphasis, it's important for us to think about death, even though we usually don't like to. And I think we could quickly add that more than just thinking about it, Scripture wants us to live in light of that coming reality, to live in light of that coming judgment. First and Second Peter both appeal to the flood in Noah's generation as a warning for their contemporaries and by extension us to flee the coming judgment. Chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's like a drumbeat, right? Reminder, don't stick your head in the sand. My friend Phil White was here in uh, the 8 o'clock service. He's the owner and operator of White Emerson Mortuary. I met Phil a number of years ago in the shadow of Jeff Dykstra's death, and I saw how well he loved and cared for grieving people, myself included. I was asked uh, to do the graveside, and I had never done that before, and I felt, I mean, talk about needing five yards and, you know, maybe not even able to get out of the backfield. I had no idea what to do in a situation like that. So I went, I didn't, I, I didn't know Phil, but I, I went to his place of business, and I just walked in unannounced, and, and, and I said, I need, I, can somebody help me? And Phil came out from, from behind the desk, he put down what he was doing, he put his arm around me, and I basically, I basically said, Phil, take my hand, right? You know, hold my hand and walk me through this. I, I don't know what to do. And he coached me through it, and we sat down and we talked. But not only there, but even at the service the next day, he just helped me through that whole process. So I, I, saw, I saw him care for Jeff's family. I saw him care for me. I have a deep affection. Uh, it was not, it's an interesting way to meet a person, isn't it? But I have a deep affection for the way he loves and cares for people. Because of that connection, I asked him recently to share some of his thoughts with me on Genesis chapter 5. So I asked him, you know, I said, Phil, read, you know, Genesis chapter 5. Think about that a little bit, and, and let's get together and tell me what you think. So, so we got together a few weeks ago for breakfast at, uh, at Panera. It was so much fun, right? Again, I mean, he was talking, and I just had my laptop. I was just typing. I was just learning again from Phil. What do I, you know, what do, what do I do here? And it was, it was a beautiful time, and there's so many things that he said that I would— all right, what a great person to ask about the reality of death. But the thing that stood out to me the most, he said that when he reads Genesis 5, the place he goes to immediately is to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Let me read a portion of that to you, okay? This is what stood out to him. Verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 7 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So we ask, why is it better to go to the house of mourning? Answer, 
per fill, all pretense is stripped away in the house of mourning. You can't pretend that death isn't real or that God doesn't matter. There is clearly no control in the face of death. And so we either find ourselves in those moments totally lost and dismayed or remarkably for some who've begun to walk with God, there's a sense, there can be a sense that he's with me even in these moments and intends to carry me out the other side. Powerful words. Well, to quote another powerful minister about uh, the reality of death, uh, J.I. Packer wrote these words in response to what he described as the foolish denial of mortality that we often opt for. Here's what he said. He says, it's become conventional to think as if we're all going to live in this world forever and to view every case of bereavement as a reason for doubting the goodness of God. We must all know deep down that this is a ridiculous thing to do, but we do it all the same. And in doing it, we part company with the Bible, with historic Christianity, and with a basic principle of right living, namely, that only when you know how to die can you know how to live. Well, those two dudes can get you five yards, but they're not here, so. Do you have that kind of peace that they're talking about? Do you want it? Our passage tells us that you can have it. If we will lay our mortality to heart and let God show us the urgency of resting in Christ in light of that coming day, we can have it. Well, even amidst all the death of Genesis chapter 5, we do get a glimpse of the way that this pattern is broken, even in, uh, with some significant evidence from chapter 5 itself keeping with the Genesis 3.15 promise, there's a way to live beyond the grave. And that's first announced in the mention of this guy, Enoch. Let's look at verse 21 of chapter 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and when we expected to say, and then he died, it reads instead, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This is, you probably remember again from the reading service, this stands out. One of these things is not like the other. It calls our attention and it invites our question. What does this mean? Hebrews 11 expands on the life of Enoch in verse 5 with these words. It says, by faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So in Genesis 5, we find that Enoch walked with God. In Hebrews 11, we find that that Enoch pleased God by his faith. If we combine those two, I think we find that there is such a thing as a walk with God that not only pleases him, but can defy death. And that walk takes place by faith. It's an amazing phrase, isn't it? Walking with God. It characterizes Adam and Eve in the garden. It characterizes Noah and later Abraham. It's an expression of faith and intimacy with the Lord. And it's in sharp contrast to the and he died refrain of our chapter. Now, I think it's safe to say that the walk with God that Enoch experienced in chapter 5 isn't exactly the same as walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day from Genesis chapter 3. But we don't need to miss the point that here after the fall, the possibility of walking with God still remains. That's an amazing mercy of the Lord. 
And we know that as redemptive history marches on from these chapters, it becomes clarified and expanded on who secures this hope for us. But even at this early moment, Moses wants to show the way, to show the mercy of God that even after the fall, there exists the possibility of clear-eyed, death-defying intimacy with the Lord. I think intimacy is the right word for it, don't you? Knowledge is not enough. Understanding is not enough. Cain knew a lot about God. Cain had direct communication from God. Cain received warnings from God. Cain knew stuff about God. His problem was not that he didn't know the true God. It was that he lived without reference to God, even after that warning. And that leads us to point number two. Point number two is that the hub of human wickedness is always living without reference to God. The hub of human wickedness is always living without reference to God. We see that again in Cain's life. Ignorance is not required. Atheistic denial of God is not required. Life without reference to God is perfectly compatible with some understanding of who he is and probably more offensive in those cases. And when we get to Genesis chapter 6, we see that reality of life without reference to God on steroids. So we need to note a few things here. And the first one is the part that made my friends all laugh. What do you do with sons of God, Nephilim? And maybe more importantly, what does this say about the clarity of Scripture? So (coughs) let me say a few things. Two of the more common views on who these sons of God and and, and Nephilim are, um, one of them says, it's been around for a while, it says that the sons of God in Genesis 6 represent some kind of demonic taking of human wives. Uh, either by either directly um, or by some kind of demon possession and the result of which is the birth of the Nephilim. And that's possible. Um, we, we see in Job chapter 1 that Satan is referred to as being among the sons of God. The other possibility, uh, or one of the other common possibilities, is that the sons of God, in fact, represent the descendants of Seth, Seth's righteous line, who part company with God in order to marry the daughters of men from Cain's unrighteous line in chapter 4. And that's possible in context as well. There are a handful of other views that sometimes get articulated, and any good commentary can give you the rationale for them. What I want to say, what I think we honestly need to say, I'm not sure. I don't know which of the views is, is, uh, is, is more likely. And I'm not sure that any of us can be completely certain. I think Moses' audience probably knew what he was talking about, but there's just not a lot of detail given here. So I at least don't know. Which leads to a more urgent question. Does that mean that the scriptures aren't clear? And I answer that question with a resounding no. The, the, The attribute or the quality or the property of Scripture's clarity has never been taken to mean that Scripture is equally easy to understand in all of its parts. That's not what the clarity of Scripture means. The clarity of Scripture means instead that in its main thrust and its basic emphasis, the Scriptures are clear and understandable. I tell my students in class, that means you don't have to have a Bible minor from Biola University to be able to understand the main thrust and the basic emphasis of Scripture. That doesn't mean that every part is easy to understand and that there are no difficult passages to to interpret. And that's the case here as well. 
the details that may, we may not be able to penetrate the mystery of some of the details, but regardless of the interpretation of who the sons of God are, the main point is the same. One commentator put it this way. He said, the point of this cryptic passage, whichever way we take it, is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil with God's bounds overstepped in yet another realm. But more important than the detail of this episode is its indication that man is beyond self-help. Whether Sethites have betrayed their calling or demonic powers have gained a stranglehold. And what I would add to that is whether this was influenced demonically or by less supernatural means, in either case, the issue involves presumptuously going about being fruitful and multiplying in particular without reference to God. There's a parallel that's really important to notice here between Genesis 6-2 and Genesis 3-6. In Genesis 3-6, we see in the deception of Eve that she sees that the fruit is good and therefore takes and eats. She sees that it's good and she takes, okay? In Genesis 6-2, the sons of God, whoever they are, see that the daughters of man are attractive or good and take as their wives any that they choose. This parallel has been pointed out on a number of occasions. Whether it's the taking of fruit or the daughters of men, in both cases, something good in God's creation is taken and used in sinful defiance with devastating consequences. And that's true no matter who the sons of God are here. We read the result in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can't help but notice when you read that the remarkable contrast between what God sees here in Genesis chapter 6 only evil continually, and all the good that he saw in his world in Genesis chapter 1, right? Stark contrast between the two. So we find that life without reference to God begins in Genesis chapter 3. It's pronounced here in Genesis 6. These Nephilim are described in verse 4 as being men of renown. The problem, it seems, is that they were seeking renown apart from God. Again, that impulse is birthed in chapter 3 when Eve is tempted not to obey God, but effectively to be God in in, in his place and in his stead. And we find that even after the flood, this predicament, this virus remains in the human heart. Uh, Eventually, we'll get around to preaching the narrative of, of Babel, the Tower of Babel. And there we find that this sinful yearning continues as the men of that day sought to make a name for themselves, also apart from God. So when we get to verse 5, and this summary statement tells us that uh, God saw what was in their hearts was only evil continually, it doesn't tell us all the details of their specific sins, but I don't think it needs to, because it tells us where they start. It shows us the root and the origin, whether it's in marriage or renown-seeking or in other affairs, the people of this generation live their lives apart from God. And that gives rise, right, to escalating wickedness, escalating depravity in Genesis 6, and God responds to that both with judgment and with grief. First, the judgment. We see that God's judgment cuts short man's days. We see this in verse 3. The Lord said, "'My spirit shall not abide in man forever.'" 
He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And whether that means the flood's going to come 120 years from now or mankind will no longer live beyond the age of 120, which is generally true in the time after the flood, we see God's judgment taking place. We see it in chapter, or excuse me, verse 7 of chapter 6. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The flood is the great undoing. It's the great reversal of God's creative work. His judgment is rooted in the promise to crush the serpent's head. The problem is that the serpent's virus has infected Seth's line too. Now, one of the things we need to understand about God's judgment is that it is not an overreaction to sin. God's goodness necessitates that he hates and judges sin. If God did not hate and punish sin, among many other things that wouldn't be true, we could not call him good. And from the beginning, he's made it clearly known that death is sin's just punishment, which is why the cross is also not an overreaction, right? For, for forgiveness to take place, sin must be judged and punished. The cross is a mercy, but it is not an overreaction. Well, not only does God judge sin, but he's also grieved by it. Look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So, the pinnacle of God's created work has not multiplied fruitfulness, but wickedness and corruption on the earth. And God is grieved over the path his image bearers have taken. They are not walking with him. And they are living without reference to him. And the reason that is so grievous to God is that when any of us lives without reference to him, that betrays ultimately a not cherishing of him, a not trusting of him, right? Behavior always arises from the heart. And this betrays not trusting him. Well, Here's another thought about the grief of God. It is, it's just kind of a side note. It's occasionally uh, observed by some people that maybe God grieves here because he didn't know this was going to happen. And I just would, uh, would want to say that God's grief is perfectly compatible with his omniscience. And it's probably more remarkable in light of the fact that he knows what's going to happen. We had the scripture reading from Psalm 139 as a part of the service earlier. Verse 4 says, before uh, a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. Other passages we could look at. But this language of grief and sorrow for sin, it is the language of God's response to covenant transgression. Let me give you another example. Um, In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and they've gone into hiding, God says, Adam, where are you? Okay? And I would submit to you that that is not a request for information. God is not, God is not commending Adam for his hide-and-seek skills. He's not asking because he doesn't know where he is. That's not a question-seeking information. It's a question-seeking conviction. Here's what that's like. Mom tells little Johnny, no, no more cookies this afternoon because you'll spoil your dinner. Mom goes into the other room. A few minutes pass by. She hears some shuffling and some rustling around in the kitchen. She walks in. Lo and behold, little Johnny has his hand in the cookie jar. What's mom say? You're you're right. What are you doing? Why does mom say that? 
Does she not know? (laughs) She's not obtuse. She knows what's going on. She's not seeking information. She's seeking conviction and Lord willing repentance, right? That's the kind of thing that's going on in Genesis 3. That's the kind of thing that's going on in in Genesis 6. In fact, Jackson mentioned when he preached uh, Genesis 2 uh, a few weeks ago, that kind of a, a, parallel, a parallel experience even in our own lives, that we, because we know months in advance how brides and grooms will feel on the day of their wedding, and because they know how they will feel months in advance on the day of their wedding, that when the groom stands at the front of the aisle and the doors in back open up and the bride steps through, we all look at the groom's face because though we know how he will feel, we want to see it. And he knows how he will feel, but on that day he gets to feel it, right? And so, and so the knowing and the feel, right? The knowing in advance and the feeling in the moment are not incompatible experiences. Again, I dare say that because God knows in advance what will happen and how he will respond, that when that moment comes to pass, it is more poignant than had he not known. <clears throat> well, Here's what's really important to remember. This whole issue of living without reference to God, it is not a Genesis 6 generation issue versus an our generation kind of issue. We stand in the same line, don't we? We're part of Adam's line. And that means on the one hand that the hope of walking with God remains, but it also means that so too does the dilemma of the virus of sin. And for each of us, the traction of sin, of forgetting God, of living without reference to him, that traction starts small, right? I mean, sin, the sin that Hebrews tells us so easily entangles does so by deception. It doesn't play nice. It isn't friendly. It doesn't show up and say, I'm dangerous and would like to kill you, so have me around for a while. It manipulates. It deceives like the serpent. Do you remember uh, in the passage last week, where, where Kenny was telling us that God warns Cain and tells him that sin is crouching at your door. That word is used to describe like uh, um, predators, like lions that are about to pounce. Why is it crouching? Why, why do they crouch? Try to make themselves look small, right? Un- undetectable, unnoticeable. Not, 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 not disturb the environment until they pounce and then it's too late. This is what Hebrews 3 calls the deceitfulness of sin. It leads us to think, I'm okay, I can go off duty, I can rationalize or minimize, and the effect is that we begin to, to drift. It's been said in several sermons now, going back to one that Eric preached a while ago, that drift is the natural fallen inclination of humanity. We don't boot up Godward in the aftermath of the fall. This drift then can happen to any of us. We can go on autopilot. We can rely on techniques instead of intimacy with the Lord. We can go for a stretch trying to coast on past intimacies. James describes the problem this way. Here's what he says in James chapter 4. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. But you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And then listen to, listen to the, his closing punch here. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
Life without reference to God, arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You see how he says that it is so presumptuous just to even assume that we'll be alive tomorrow? And then he talks about making business plans. Making business plans for tomorrow, planning your calendar seems innocent enough, right? But James says these folks are fundamentally planning their lives without reference to God, and that's how the drift begins. You don't notice at first because you don't seem that far off course. And that brings us to our need of an antidote. The antidote to this heart-drifting, God-forgetting condition is walking with God. Walking with God. If life without reference to God is what grieves him, then walking with God is what delights him and answers the predicament of sin and judgment. So this brings us all the way back to Enoch and Noah, right? Before the description of Genesis chapter 6, before it on the one hand and after it on the other, we get these individuals, Enoch who walked with God and then Noah who does as well. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. And I'm going to just bleed a little bit into next week's sermon with verse 9 as well. Chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah stood against the tide of humanity as he walked with God. And because he did, the line of the woman's seed didn't break. It came under an awful lot of duress, didn't it? But it didn't break. That line didn't end with Noah. He was a type of rest bringer and a role model, but even while he was blameless in his generation, he wasn't sinless. Noah was not the final promised one. Scripture indicates, right, from this point forward, it expands and, and, and develops that there's only one who ever completely and faultlessly walked with God. And that person, of course, is Jesus Christ. If you have a chance later on today, while you're in the mood of, uh, of reading genealogies, you might want to try reading the one in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, we find a genealogy that stresses Jesus not only as the son of David or the son of Abraham, but the son of Adam himself, all the way back through the line of Seth. Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of the woman. And he is the reason that any of us can escape the clutches of death. See, when, when the scriptures talk about our walk with God, it's not saying that our walk is intrinsically meritorious. It is saying that our walk connects us to the one faultless walker. And when we walk with our eyes on him, not only do we experience things like forgiveness and mercy, but that can lead us to walk with him in moments and times when other paths might seem easier or more inviting. Think about how many days Noah had to get up and work on the ark. Think about how many mornings it would have been easier just to stay in bed, just to grumble, to go, grumble and complain, to go along with the tide. His walk is fueled by faith. Isn't that amazing term? The intimacy suggested by that term, walking with God, not just escaping judgment, but communion with God. It, Almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? But that's exactly what Jesus came to offer. And the rest of Scripture warns how we need to find our faith fueled by him in light of a coming day of judgment that will be even greater than the judgment of the flood. 
The point of the Bible, friends, is that we need to walk with God now and to live in light of that coming judgment while the opportunity to do so still remains. And I just want to say that if you're here with us this morning and you've never done that, we are really glad you're here. This is a great place for you to be. This is a great morning. And I would love to talk with you after the sermon if this stuff about walking with God and Jesus the greater walker and all those kind of, if that doesn't quite make sense to you, if you've got questions, if you want to know what that looks like, I'd be happy to do that. In a few moments, we'll have uh, servers for the Lord's Supper uh, join us at the, at the front and, and you'll notice them and, and maybe you could seek one of them out. They'd be happy to talk with you as well about what this all means. For the rest of us <clears throat> who have imperfectly begun the walk of faith, Here's a couple of questions to think about as we get ready to receive the Lord's Supper. The first one is this. What would it look like for that expression, walked with God, to be an apt summary of your own life? What would it look like if that statement was an apt summary of your life? And two, where is your life perhaps functionally being lived today without reference to God? Where do you detect drift? What do we need to repent of today? See, life without reference to God is not just something that we're occasionally in danger of. It is something that each of us stumbles into and to some measure every day, which is why the Lord's Supper is a great thing to take, not only after this message, but with regularity. I hope you're in the habit of regularly joining us and participating in our Lord's Supper services at the first of each month on Sunday evening and now in the morning services to some degree as well. That is a tangible reminder of the cost and the forgiveness of a life that to some degree has been lived without reference to God. I find that when I know the Lord's Supper is coming this Sunday or that Sunday or just a few days away, that 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 causes me to slow down and exercise even more self-scrutiny to repent as needed. It's a grace to us. Well, the servers, if you uh, are here, you can go ahead and come forward and take the elements and spread out to the corners. I just want to say a little bit about who the uh, Lord's Supper is for as they uh, spread out around the room. Three things. The first is that the Lord's Supper is a meal. It's a sinner's meal, but it is for believers who recognize and repent of sin. It symbolizes trust in Christ as the perfect walker. And the scriptures tell us that if you don't share that faith, you shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. Again, if that's you, we'd love to talk with you. One of the people up front or myself, we'd love to talk with you afterwards. But I also want you to know that if you don't partake of the Lord's Supper today, you don't, there's no reason to feel awkward. At Grace, we come forward as people are, feel led. Some people sit in their chairs and they pray for a little while. Some come immediately. So nobody's going to know what you do or don't do if you choose not to come. Secondly, for those who are believers— but are clinging to some sin in their lives that are, and you're unwilling to repent of that today. Paul also tells that person not to take. He says to eat of the Lord's Supper in a cavalier manner is to eat and drink judgment on oneself. That can be a scary place. If you find yourself there, if you know you're, you, you have unrepentance in your heart, don't come, but please pray. Of course, the good news is that you can repent right where you are. You can cry out to God right now in the quietness of your heart and in the, play, in the location of your seat, and then you can come. Third and final thought. 
the Lord's Supper in relation to baptism. If you're a Christ follower and you are in the regular habit of taking communion, but you haven't been baptized, we do welcome you at the table today. But we would like to ask you at some point later on to think about why you're in the habit of observing communion, but haven't participated in baptism. Maybe you've never even thought about that before, and that's okay. We'd love to help with that too. And the best way to do that is with the baptism class that Grace offers periodically, and Eric Twisselman tells me that, that will, the next one starts on April 9th with a continuing for several Sundays in a baptism service, possibly to take place on the first Sunday in May. If you attend that class, if you have questions, if you want to explore, if you want to answer some issues there, going to that class doesn't mean you have to get baptized. It just affords an opportunity to think about baptism in a little bit more detail. With that said, we've got several stations up here. We've got the gluten-free station to my right, to your left, if you need that. We're going to transition into this time of taking communion. When you feel led, when you're ready to come forward, do so. Tear a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and feast in faith. Amen.